Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No Welcome everyone to Storylines. This is my new event podcast dedicated to all the characters who make up the event world. It's my personal goal to become the best possible event producer and manager that I can be. So, I figured the best way to learn was just to hear from the people who've already been there. I interview and speak with people from across the event industry to learn about their experiences and to find out how to use them at our next events. So, have fun and enjoy. So we're just going to start. I'm here with Matt Glass, who is the owner and CEO of Aventage. No, not CEO. Just Partner, Chief Creative Officer. Partner and Chief Creative Officer. So Matt, let's just start with a brief introduction. Who are you and what do you do and how did you get into the event world? I am Matt Glass and with my wife, we own Aventage, an event production company. Uh, I focus on the creative development and production stuff here at Aventage. We are this year... 17 years old. We started in 1998 in our apartment in the West Village and have grown year after year. And I got into the business in kind of a backwards way like a lot of people do. Um, I was at Macy's for Christmas help. And one day they sent me to Santa Land. I would go to different departments each day and they sent me to Santa Land where I helped manage the lines and it was the most intense day I had, but it was so much better than selling ladies' coats. Uh, and I met the guy who ran Santa Land, and he had a pin on that said Macy's Special Productions. And I said, so do you do this for a living? And he said, do you mean there are any jobs? Are there any jobs? And I said, well, you know, uh, I was 23, 22 at the time. And he said, he gave me his card, which I remember had um, a band guy with a drum on it with an ampersand inside it for Macy's Parade and Annual Events. And then I went and worked uh, through a family connection on the 1992 Democratic National Convention. I delivered, hand-delivered hotel reservations to 69 hotels for all the Democrats that were coming because there was no internet to do that with. And on the day the Convention Bureau offered me a permanent job in convention services, which I worked very hard to get them to do, Macy's called and offered me a temporary job running Santa Land. Jack Damlos, who was the guy who I'd met that day, called me back. And it, it wasn't even a question as to whether I would take the part-time job. So you went from one day in Santa Land to running the whole thing? Well, I was the Christmas coordinator, which was a freelance uh, position. And it was me and a gentleman named Robert Allen, um, who became my closest friend at Macy's. And yeah, we ran Santa Land. So we had 165 uh, elves, 36 Santas. We were open from the day after the parade 
until Christmas Eve, and we saw about 300,000 people. Uh, and it, I grew up really fast in the event world. I was going to say, that seems a pretty intense jump from working, helping do crowd control to suddenly controlling an event that sees 300,000 people. Well, the odd thing is that I was there for five years, um, that Flying Squad was the department I was in where they just assigned you wherever they needed Christmas help. And we never had a Flying Squad person in the five years I was there. We never want a Flying Squad person because they didn't know how things worked. So some strange thing happened that they sent me to Santa Land that day where normally they don't send people to Santa Land. And that has changed my life. It changed everything. It changed what I do for a living. I met my wife. I Everything came from that one day of being sent to Santa Land and me meeting Jack. So when you say flyer squad, so it was just wherever they needed help, they just plugged you in? Yeah, flying squad, you show up in the morning on the ninth floor, you sit in an office, and they say, okay, um, Matt Glass, ladies' coats today. And with almost no training, you go down to ladies' coats, and you try to, you know, help people. And there were no barcodes back then. There wasn't computerized. So I was awful at it. I was probably the worst registered person. They did send me to men's wallets and accessories one day, which I was pretty good at because I could kind of give some advice. And then they sent me to lingerie on my last day, which I was incredibly awkward and <laughs> wasn't very good. But uh, I just wanted to do something I could only do in New York City. I was living in Brooklyn for free with my best friend and riding my bike and writing and you know doing all kinds of English major things. And I said, I'm going to get a job that I can only do in New York. And it was the world's largest store. So it... Uh, it changed my life. I, I certainly backed into it in a way I didn't think I would. That's really funny. And so then, when did you start working on the parade? And you did fireworks there as well, right? Yeah, we did the parade, the fireworks, the flower show, uh, Tapomania, which was the world record-breaking event. Um, my first parade was that first year, while I was Christmas quarters. Everybody who works on Santa Land also works on the parade. So uh, my first parade, I was the assistant in the command center, um, and... Uh, then the next year, so Jack, who had brought me in temporarily, actually passed away the following April. And while I didn't get his job, I got a lot of his responsibilities. Um, so I grew up again really fast. Um, but yeah, my first parade was uh, 1992. And uh, it was an experience. Is that where you met Jean McFadden? That was where I met Jean McFadden. She was my boss. She called me Matt Matt. Um, and she taught, <laughs> I could envision her saying that. She taught, she taught all of us a lot. And that's where I learned... The combination of logistics and branding, because the Macy's Parade is a, is a logistical feat, but it also is an incredibly successful branding event. So, you know, those, those balloons and those floats are all strategically placed and all um, sponsored, uh, furnished, as they say. Um, and we sure had to have a Macy's Star balloon behind the Bart Simpsons balloon, because Gene taught us that uh, it's a Macy's Parade. And while Bart is one of the stars, it, it is, um, it's a Macy's event. So I learned, I learned a lot from Gene, uh, even things that had nothing to do with events, that health is important and that, you know, life is important. And uh, it, was, it was a great way to grow up, and I met a lot of great people there, including Jen, who became my partner and my wife. Well, it's funny because obviously I met you and I got my start in events thanks to Gene, and she got to help change my life as well. Uh, and when I first got into the industry, I mean, I told people how I got here through Gene, and everybody told me that she was a force of nature. So I was wondering if you had one favorite Gene McFadden story you wanted to share. Yeah, wow, there's a lot of Gene McFadden stories. Um, uh, one of the ones that, I don't know, it has to do with when they outlawed smoking at Herald Square. Uh, you know, that was the time when they were starting to do that in a lot of workplaces. And this was like 2000 no, or was earlier? What? When they started outlawing smoking? No, this was probably 96. I left Macy's in 96. Okay. So, so 
it was 94, 95, and the, the big question was, what was Jean going to do? Because Jean was famous for having, you know, her cigarette in her office. Um, and uh, that was a, <laughs> was a very funny thing, because we all rallied around her. The other thing about Jean is that she wasn't technologically advanced. She's a brilliant woman and a brilliant entertainer. But um, this was also when computers weren't so easy. So I was her IT guy. So I spent many a day in Jean's office, like digging behind her armoire where, where we had her computer, teaching her how to use Windows 95. Um, and she put a lot of confidence in me, confidence in me which I, I appreciated. Um, and I grew an enormous uh, amount there um, in lots of different ways. So I will always credit Jean, you know, not only for my career, but for, she takes credit for my wife and my kids and everything else, which she should. Well, it's funny because when you started talking about they started outlawing smoking and I couldn't remember when that was. I remember growing up when uh, you would go to a restaurant and there was a smoking and non-smoking. But I think that transition happened when I was like between 7 and 10. So it's like a time that I know existed, but I don't really have any place of when that happened. And in the beginning, you said you've done Advantage now for 17 years. So you think like where has the time gone? Can you believe it's been 17 years? Not at all. I can't believe that we own a company that has lasted this long. I, I still sometimes think I'm wondering what I'm going to do when I grow up. But, um, you know, I'm an English major. Jen's a psychology major. We both say we don't have any business running a business. But we have really great people around us. And we've been really lucky um, that our clients have stuck with us. And we stick with them. And, no, 17 years. You know, it'll be 10 years that we've been in the South Orange office this year. Um, I still, you know, our, we've had three or four offices. But, um uh, it will be in, in, he, in here for a decade, and uh, it feels kind of like yesterday that we moved in. Any special event planned for your 10-year anniversary? In South Orange? No, I don't think so. A, a new lease, hopefully, on our, <laughs> on, our, uh, on our office space. So what made you decide to start a vintage? Uh, well, we left Macy's, and Jen went into the Broadway world, and I went and did industrials. I did pharmaceutical shows and car shows uh, around the world, actually. Um, and I really wanted to get back into public events. I, I, the, the industrials taught me so much about staging, about client relations, about show production, but I would go to a hotel ballroom somewhere or a theater somewhere and, and, you know, the, it'd be a sales meeting. And while it was really cool stuff, we had orchestras on stage, we had flying scenery. I mean, it it was really amazing stuff we did. I wanted, I missed the public event world. Uh, and then I kind of, because I was freelance, I, um, got a freelance gig with, with uh, Disney because they were bringing the electrical parade to New York City for the first time. This was when Times Square was just starting to be uh, reignited and did the Disney stores. What's the that. electrical parade? That's like the parade you'd see if you're in Disney. In Disneyland. And they were retiring it. And so as part of the, the press for Hercules, which was the new uh, movie and musical, and the New Amsterdam Theater, which they were premiering, uh, you know, they were just had gotten kind of the strip joints off of 42nd Street. They decided to bring the electrical parade to New York, and I just randomly tried to get a job with them, uh, freelance. And I met a guy named John Menching, who's the head of entertainment for and for Disneyland, and he liked that I worked from for Macy's, and he kind of liked we had we hit it off, and he hired me to coordinate all the pre-show uh, they called Streetmosphere, so all the stuff that ca- happened before the parade came through. And it was amazing. The parade was on 42nd, starting at 9th Avenue, went to 5th Avenue, and made a left and went up 5th Avenue. And they had coordinated that all the street lights and all the offices would close, uh, shut their lights off. 
so that the electrical pair would work better. They also repaved most of those streets. Um, I saw the actual, the, the power of the Disney brand coming into New York what? City. <laughs> yeah. What time of day was this? The nighttime. That is really cool if everyone shut off their lights. Like, that's yeah, not it, too many it, companies hold that much respect. No, it was, and so what I did, though, is I brought in all my friends from Macy's um, to work that day, which be, is the kind of the predecessor of the E-Team. Um, and Jen came and worked, and our, our friend Stephen, who we worked with, and we realized, wow, we actually might be able to do this. So actually, Jen, Stephen, and I started in our apartment. The first event we got paid to do really as a, as a company was the 1998 fireworks for the consolidation of New York City. We had five fireworks shows, all firing simultaneously, and we were on the top of One World Trade Center. It was our command center where we could see all the shows. And it just kind of happened. I don't know. A lot of times these things happen without really planning on it. We didn't plan on a real company with employees and insurance and, you know, uh, it just kind of happened. So um, we also didn't realize we were going to have the two sides of the business. We thought we'd do firework shows and parades and things like that. And then we did an event for Ego Waffles in Grand Central. Um, and that was our first PR event. So the event, the, the company grew kind of on these two prongs, one nonprofit slash civic events and the other branding events. That was like 98? 98 was the Ego. Uh, well, the Ego... Uh, 98 was the fireworks. The Ego event was actually when Jen and I were on our honeymoon. <laughs> Steven was here at Grand Central with a bunch of our E-teamers. Um, but it's amazing. Back in, We used to do a lot in Grand Central back then, and we used to clean up. We didn't hire anybody to clean up. It was just... We just did everything ourselves. Um, and then Times Square 2000 was a big event for us. We hired a lot of folks for that. We were in Times Square for 24 hours as we celebrated um, the New Year uh, in every time zone across the country. Um, and now that was 15 years ago, which I don't want to even ask you how old you were. No, it's funny. When you said Hercules, I remember I was in seventh grade. Yeah. You give me that, I can remember right away. So I thought it was pretty funny. I was in seventh grade when Hercules came out. Um, in 2000, I graduated high school in 05, so I was probably 13. Mm. Um, good times. <laughs> good times. So what did you do in Times Square? For the New Year's? Yeah. Uh, we were hired as the company managers for all the volunteers. So uh, Michael Curry, who created the puppets for The Lion King, who's based out of Portland, Oregon, um, he created all these amazing puppets that they had started a couple years before, just like a father time and a baby New Year. But he did tons and tons of puppets, and we were responsible for uh, recruiting, uh, training, managing all the volunteers that over 24 hours carried these puppets into Times Square. Um, so it was kind of like a street performance? Yeah, well, it was all... We were, we were headquartered on 41st Street between... Well, it was a parade or kind of people went out sporadically. Well, every hour it would go out. So we would celebrate, and the, the talent up on the stage in the center of Times Square would, would reflect match the country that the, was... The region, um, so, um, you know, drummers from Palau or whatever, and then there'd be fish that would come out. And, and I did a puppet at 4 a.m. Eastern, I think. Because one of the tricky things, the toughest part was we'd hit... Uh, midnight Eastern, most people would leave and we were still there because we had to finish um, all 24 hours. So we we managed, we were, we were behind the scenes. Uh, we got to work with some amazing people. We met Peter Coleman, who was the head of events for the Times Square Bid, who's now our client for the Celebrated Israel Parade and a couple other things. Um, and that, that was a great opportunity for us to kind of be on a, a world stage. Did you enjoy working on New Year's, or was it, like, too crowded? Or you... I enjoyed working on New Year's being on the correct side of the barricades. <laughs> I was really glad I wasn't a member of the public, and I, I guess I've not been back since. So uh, I'm not the 
times. I, you know, I'm the kind of guy. I'm a production guy. I don't, I don't want to be in an event if I'm in the audience. I want to be in the event. I want to be behind the scenes. Um, I wouldn't go to Times Square on New Year's unless I was working. Well, even just doing an event in Times Square, we were there a couple of weeks ago, and you left me behind to uh, do loadout, and I'm right in front of that Maybelline sign, and so people are transfixed at looking at themselves. That was awesome. There's a lot more to look at now than there used to be. So well, we, we used to get our crew coffee and food and stuff in the old Howard Johnson's, but what you realize is Times Square used to shut down. I mean, by 1 o'clock in the morning, there was no place to get anything for our crew or anything like that. And it got pretty dark because there were no LED screens. They were uh, all giant signs. No, I'm just laughing at the difference of how people are just so unaware in Times Square. Like, I have 27-foot trucks, and I'm just trying to move them to get them out of the sidewalk. And people are just walking straight in front of it, looking, staring at themselves like, oh, yeah, that was an experience. Then they're not from New York. But. Yeah, no, but that's everybody at Times <laughs> Square at, what, 12, 8, you know. 12 a.m. So what's one thing that you wish you knew when you started that you know now? Hmm. I... Uh, one thing I wish I knew when I started um, would have been maybe some of the the legal side of things, the organization side of things, just to we we did it so half-assed. You know, we had we used a CT corporation company to incorporate. There's some guy in Albany goes and, like, registers it in. Uh, you know, I think we could have set things up a little more concretely to, to prepare us, you know, bylaws and things like that. But ultimately, my belief is that's not what would make a company successful. You can do a half-assed job of that, and if you have good people, you're going to be successful because people will want to pay you to, to do things for them. Um, but I, I wish that we had paid a little more attention to it, I guess, back then. Um, but... The where we are right now is where I think we want to be. I, I don't, I, I don't. I I mean, there's certainly plenty of missteps that we we probably did make, but um, I just feel more experienced. And I tell this to people who want to get into events all the time: is yes, there are degrees in event management now that it never used to be. But the way that you get good at events is doing events. You have um, to be there, boots on the ground, and just yes. people panic when they don't. Well, people, it's funny, I have a lot of friends, I'm at the age where they're getting married, and I start to see my friends getting stressed out, and what I'm trying to tell them is, when you start playing an event, people don't realize just the overwhelming amount of uncertainty. You're literally creating an idea that doesn't yet exist, and you're going through all these questions you never thought you'd have to answer, and it's one after the other after the other, and you're only going to know what to do the next step if you're a little bit more experienced. So yeah, the idea of kind of like an event management degree to me is funny. Like, I mean, you could have hospitality, you have marketing, you have business, but if you want to do events, you you just have to be out there. What's one thing that has really surprised you about owning your own company? Uh, It shouldn't surprise me, but that it's very hard to turn it off. (laughs) Um, You know, we're incredibly lucky. I get to work with my wife. I get to manage my own schedule. I get to go where I want to go ultimately, but you never shut it off. When I was at Macy's, you know, our favorite place in the whole world is up in Maine. I've been going every summer since I was born to the same place on the same pond. And I used to, at Macy's, I would put my voicemail on and say, I'll be back in two weeks. And that doesn't really happen anymore. Um, there's really no such thing as completely shutting your own company off. Um, and, but that's, but you take the good with the bad. I, I will, I will still take that. Um, you know, I haven't, I, I, when I say I don't work for anybody, I work for all of my clients and I work for our employees and I work for everybody. But, um, it 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 is constant and it's like having another child it's it's a it's a big part of our lives and our family and another nice thing is my kids come here now all the time and they know the people who work here and it, it is when we say we're family owned we we really are and that's that's a good thing 
Is that what you're most proud of? I think we're most proud of the environment we've built here, that we've had some people who have been here for 15 years. We have people who just come in the door and tell us how much they like it. We, yeah, I, I think it's building. Um, yeah, we're certainly proud of the events we've done and the, and the organizations we've helped, but uh, Jen and I were very focused on creating the kind of place that we wanted to work in, and I think we've done it. All right, so now I kind of want to go from Eventage more focused just on events. What are some event trends that you really like? Event trends I, I like, I think are cool, are the unexpected things in events. Um, whether you want to call, I mean, I think flash mobs are a, a little bit probably past their time, but the idea of a flash mob to me from a theatrical point of view, and, and whether it's just the unsuspecting, I, I think is great. And the it's surprise and the random world. spontaneity. Yeah, I think the randomness that an audience... My big thing and when I look at an event is, is the audience reaction. My whole thing is how do you stir someone's attention and soul and whatever else it may be. And you do that often by doing things in unexpected places. You know, we're not really a ballroom event company. Um, and that's the whole idea behind the, the street theater is is the, the... I don't know if it's a trend or not, but it's not as surprising anymore because not everybody's doing it. But... Um, I, I like the unexpected, the the non-traditional. What are some event trends you don't like? The complete focus on social media. Um, to the an event is still a live thing that happens with people who look at it and interact with it and have a physical attachment to it. I think sometimes gets people get uh, nowadays especially get so focused on well what's the hashtag and how is this going to look in one sentence or one hundred and forty characters or and. and Yes, that's all important because, you know, we use Facebook and we... we but people do it backwards. The social media should echo the live experience. Oh, You're getting... So if you... And what people don't understand, you're a writer and I'm a writer, is that if you're not... You cannot tell a... You know, like, don't try and tell the whole story in 141 words. Blow it up. Find out what story you're trying to tell is, and it's a lot easier to hack that down then to 140, 140 characters, and then a hashtag because you know the essence or you know the true narrative of the story. Mm-hmm. You can't capture that like at the first go with 140 characters. Yeah. So I'm with you on that. People focus too much on it, and what you want to do and have social media is have people enjoy the experience to post it themselves. And if you're so worried about like the posting side, which is the boring side, you're not going to create something random or fun or even original because mm-hmm. you're combined by so many like uh, boxes and obstacles. How do you think events have changed since you started Vantage? And I guess that goes right into what you just said, social media, huh? You've social been there the entire thing because you said you started, you could like had like computers, you had Windows 95. And so you've been creating events through the entire yeah, social media I mean, era. Everything has changed. I still have the notebook. We all had at Macy's spiral-bound uh, three-ring binders that had um, alphabetical tabs in them. And when you, <laughs> you met have someone, an iPad. <laughs> when you met someone, you took their business card and you stapled it in under, you know, like B for you or S for you. And I still have that book. And I looked at all the business cards. This is 1996 when I left. So it doesn't, I mean, I know it's a long time ago. There was not one email address on any of those business cards. There was not one website. We didn't do anything. So that's the thing that amazes me is that um, not that long ago, my computer, I don't know what we were doing, it was being upgraded or whatever. So I didn't have my computer. Um, I didn't know what to do. <laughs> uh, it's very strange how we are so focused on our laptops and so focused on the internet and email, whereas incredibly wonderful events have been produced that had nothing to do with that stuff. So I think the production end has changed. Um, from us being so digitally focused now, and also the onsite has changed, but technology has changed. 
you know, the advances in LED have changed, but still, the remain the thing is about the show and the the element of surprise and the and the content that that how you get there may be different, but but the actual show itself and what stirs an audience is the same. And I think that you have to go back to those same things. And we produced the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. It parades what eighty some odd years now. They did it way before even. I mean, I remember we had we had flip cell phones when I did the fireworks. We rented it. And I brought a cell phone out to the pier for me for uh, for the week, and it was a dollar twenty five a minute to use a cell phone. But I had my pager, um, so everything was different. But in some senses, everything's the same. It's just the process uh, is is different. Do you think that communication is now easier and clearer today with all these like cell phones and emails, or do you miss the days where people actually had to talk to each other? I think that. Even with all the communication, there's an incredible amount of miscommunication and misunderstandings. I think people uh, are so unorganized in emails. You get these, like, it drives me nuts. Nobody changes topics. So you get these 47-page threads. And then so people see this monster email and nobody reads it. And so you have people asking questions midway through when you answer it in the next sentence. Uh, email think... drives me nuts. If people spent a little more time on emails, communication would be so... Clear. We have the ability, but everybody just takes advantage of it, and you get a series of one-word answers or like one-sentence answers. Yes, and I remember at Macy's we had a fax machine, and that was a big deal that we had a fax machine. I like seeing those business but cards. I'm wondering machine, when those are going to go off. Well, I think we may have taken it off of something, um, but the fax machine was actually the worst thing that could have happened to us. Fax machine and FedEx. <laughs> Because everything had to be done now. I mean, it was the precursor to, to, you know, I need that contract now. I need this now. Everything now is is immediate. And there's no time for thought. There's no time to, and it's expected. And now with texting, which, you know, I think will take over, you know, SMS in some way is going to replace email. I don't think for people my age, but um, I know my daughter doesn't really do email. Um, she doesn't even talk on the phone. She texts. It is text and Snapchat and, and Instagram. And I think that right now it isn't in the business world. I think email is still the primary way that we people communicate. But I say to people in our office sometimes, just pick up the phone. Uh, because email, there's no nuance in email. And people read things the wrong way. And people get the wrong impression. Just pick up. The, and I'm guilty of it too. It's so much easier to just email. Well, it's uh, easier. And you know that people seem to just never pick up their phone. Yeah, well, you know, uh, I just saw Coca-Cola in Atlanta eliminated um, hard lines in their offices, in their global headquarters. No one. It has makes sense. Everybody has a cell phone. Why do you need two? I understand. But if you're old-fashioned and old... No, it's I, funny. I, I, it's I, really... I like no, that's really interesting. Uh, it's, we're at a weird point. We talked about technology, about how many things are coming out that are making things irrelevant. Like the flash drive, you know, it's like you have a million of those things, but now I have Dropbox and it's so much easier than trying to figure out what the hell I stored on which, you know, which file. We're at a point where CDs, DVDs, all disc related things are getting cut out of the equation. So it's interesting to see how fast everything is jumping. Do you have a favorite type of event that you like to plan? Not bar mitzvahs, huh? No, not not bar mitzvahs. Um, uh, A favorite type of event. I like, uh, as I mentioned before, places, things in unexpected places. I think I like the ceremonial stuff, which is what I focus a lot on, is a lot of our nonprofit clients. I do the ceremonies at, at the events, um, which kind of tell stories and which get people emotionally attached. Um, I really like firework shows, although we don't do any of it anymore, but that was my favorite thing at Macy's. Um, to be on a barge underneath 
the largest fireworks show in the country is an experience. Are fireworks is that like I don't even know a point of reference, but like do you think from like when you started, have they decreased, increased, or stayed the same number of fireworks shows per year? Uh, I think the cost has gone down, so there probably are more fireworks shows. I think that the larger ones are probably about the same. There's uh, Thunder Over Louisville, which I don't even know is still around. There's a competition in Montreal. Um, you know, fireworks competitions are amazing because you just have all these companies come and compete, and, and you get to sit and watch them do the best stuff that they know how to do. Um, oh, that's cool. Where but, are those shows? Like, uh, there used to be one in Montreal. There was one called Thunder Over Louisville, which was a competition. Um, so it's like a I, national convention of fireworks? Kind of. Yeah, they, they, it's like if you had a, a boat show or whatever, you know, other, other businesses, this is where the fireworks companies come and do that. But no, I think fireworks have gotten technologically more advanced. I, you know, when we, I started at Macy's, um, the guys would be on the barge with a panel in front of them with a whole bunch of um, metal nodes and based on the click track they would listen to of the soundtrack they would hit the different numbers which would ignite the different it was not computerized they'd listen to and these guys were very talented and they would hit it like and we had four barges and they all had all four had hit the same time by the time i left it was starting to be computerized we had a little macintosh se30s on each barge that started to control it and now obviously it's it's completely automated so you just hit the button and it kind of automatically goes and it syncs to the music and it shoots yeah but it used to be yeah you you know, they, I, they, we had the, the the click track would go along and i used to be one of my favorite things was i helped create the soundtracks so we'd go to wplj across the street from macy's and we would you know pick some music and we edit it together and there'd always be voiceover telling kind of the stories about July 4th, but then the click track would be put to it and the guys have to memorize like one, two, three, four, five. And it's exhausting for them. And they're, in a container on, they're in a container on a barge with, you know, shells exploding all around them. It's uh, got to be exciting. It's got to be super stressful too. Yeah. yeah, it is. And that's an event that you work for so long and in 15 minutes it's, it's done. But that's one of the things we like about events is that you work incredibly hard for a very short amount of time and there's a tangible finish to what you do. Oh, yeah, completely. I mean, that's funny because that's also the hard part is when you throw so much work into something and then all of a sudden it's over and then, like, you go into work on Monday and you got to get ready for the next thing, but you're kind of like, I need today. You know, it's yeah. like, it's exhausting because you put so much effort into something for it to just be over. It's kind of, it's a unique phenomenon with events. It's funny to be that guy who was, like, got so good touching the nodes with the fireworks and then one day somebody <laughs> put it to a computer and it's just like you're this rare skill that sorry we don't need yeah. too many uh yeah, but those fireworks guys that load them so i think they're probably relieved to do that oh yeah that, that makes it easier um so you do a lot of non-profits do you plan for non-profit events different than other events no, not, I don't know. I mean, I think the mission is a little different. Uh, with our branding events, they're trying to sell more product or promote a product. And with the nonprofit events, they're trying to promote their cause and raise money. Um, so a brand is a brand, whether it's the American Heart Association or Budweiser, it's a brand. Um, how we go about the logistics between it, that's why there's so much crossover in the company. People do both kinds of events. I think some people do more of one than the other uh, because the type of event may be different but anybody here can cross over and do both well i work for two nonprofits. i kind of have my own unique view um i feel the biggest problem with nonprofit events you could agree or disagree is that it doesn't seem to be focused it's just like i worked for this one and we were family services and they came up with an event and it was a concert based around this group called the broadway boys so it was just like a concert of like a b-level act in new york 
It's like, and this has nothing to do with the mission, and it's how do you get people excited about selling this event? That has nothing to do with who you are. I guess my advice to nonprofits is just try and pick an event that really tells your story. Do you have any, I guess, advice, or is there a rule or lesson you've learned working with nonprofits? Well, a lot of times nonprofits use a different vehicle to get people there because kidney disease is not exciting. So they'll, but, but the key is, to your point, is once they're, once they're in the seats or standing wherever they are, you have to engage them and tell them why. And that's what we do a lot of work with right now with a lot of nonprofits across the country is once they get the people on site, they're not doing the right things to engage them and to tell them why they are essential, why the cause that they're there for is essential, and why they need money and to spread the word. Um, this on-site experience is something that for the last two or three years I focused a lot on. Because it doesn't quite match. Well, yeah, or, or they, they are so, if we talk about a, a walk or something like that, they're so focused on the toilets and on getting the T-shirts there and getting their teams and getting the big ZD there for the lunch afterwards. They don't even think about what they're saying to these people when they're on-site. And on-site is the most valuable time you have with them because you can email them all day long. You can try to, but uh, on-site is when you can get your message across. And the, and the biggest thing that I preach to all these folks is just telling stories. Um, you know, the few organizations we're working with right now is we're, we're, we're trying to get them to focus on telling in simple ways, not about statistics, not about, you know, the, the rates of this disease or that disease, but actually here's a person who has this, whatever it is, and here's how we help them. And that's what people want to hear. So, and that can happen, you know, we work in the Women's Sports Foundation on their, um, annual gala, uh, Women's Sports Awards. Um, and we tell lots of stories there too. It, it, whether you're on a stage in a ballroom or whether you're in a field for a walk, you, you have to tell stories. Because you're connecting it with a personal experience. Nobody can understand the fight of the kidney disease as a whole, but you could understand one person's struggle. Correct. And so that's kind of your vehicle to help people understand. Um, so how's that different? Because you work as in a lot of large-scale logistical events. So is it different planning a nonprofit than, say, the New York Marathon or the Five Boroughs Bike Tour? Well, yeah, I mean, from a production point of view for instance the marathon we are solely in a logistical that's what we do and we've done it for however 12 11 years 12 years now how did you get involved with the new marathon i remember i had just moved to new jersey i was sitting on my front stoop and i was talking to a guy named jake lasala on the phone i don't remember honestly (laughs) we got the call all we don't have any salespeople, so all of our business comes from word of mouth and somehow jake got to us and they were looking for a, a new group to come help them out in Staten Island with the sponsor activations and just to, to kind of be their eyes and ears out there. And we got the gig. And then we were in Staten Island only for a few years. And then we expanded out to do the medical stations on the course. Then we expanded out to do the elite fluid management, uh, athletes with disabilities. Um, that happens a lot with our clients as we start small and then we grow because we get to know each other and they get to trust us. You take on more pieces of the puzzle. Yeah, that's what happened to Bike New York. That, that happens with a lot of them. What lessons have you learned from the marathon that you carried over to the Five Boroughs Bike Tour? Um, well, we started with Bike New York first. Uh, we were Bike New York in 2003. They are very similar but very different events. I think Bike New York under Ken Patsiba has, has made it more like the marathon of a full weekend. With, you know, We now produce an expo for them um, where there never was one. So I, th- I think the, the lesson is to harness the passion of your participants that they will come to New York from all over the world, even when it's canceled. You know, we found out when everyone else found out about the cancellation after Sandy. I, I haven't been at the marathon in the last few years because I go to L.A. for a different event. But we were we were all, you know, nobody had any power. We were trying to find out where our trucks were going to get fuel. 
And we found out on Friday, like everybody else, that it was gonna that it was canceled. But there were still people here so passionate about running and from biking, so passionate about cycling, that um, you got to harness that. I think Ken is right about it. You know, the expo extends cycling in New York for the weekend. Um, they now have a charity program, which the Ridge Roadrunners has. So um, I think it also you learn that being grandfathered is a good thing because the marathon and bike New York wouldn't happen today. Um, the amount of city resources that goes towards it, the amount of closures. Um, but it is a it is a economic driver for the city. And it's so. become a tradition, so people are going to notice its absence more. Yeah. So I always like to end on a little more of a personal note. So we start off on the bad side because we all know with events something always goes wrong. Do you have one horror story from your career in the event world? It could be anything. I mean, it could be a travel story. It could be a day well, of. It could be... Horror stories are, you know, and, and I have a friend and client from years ago she worked for a PR company and she always would say it's PR not ER um, you know we're not it's not brain surgery where we're, we're, people certainly do it some people do it better than others but we're not it's not life and death which actually when you do participatory events sometimes it may be but we don't have any horror stories like that like like I've been on events where there's been a death of a participant oh I'm not looking at that but, right, that but so when you say horror story it actually comes back to Macy's which is my first big mistake that I made uh, I was running the command center in on the third floor of Herald Square, and part of the odd thing about that is you don't actually, you don't actually get to see the parade. You're listening to 13 radio channels, and you, I actually, my second year, got a feed of the NBC telecast so I could see that. But this must have been before the NBC telecast. It was before I got that TV monitor in there. One of my jobs, in, including you know relaying things to NBC, like Barney is down, it's not coming through, or whatever else, was I called the confetti releases. So the entire roof of the building was rigged with confetti guns. And there were two big releases. One, when the parade arrives in Times Square, and one at the end, um, when Santa comes. And I got confused, uh, because the Rockettes dance twice. The Rockettes dance as part of the first hour, because they're kind of like a Broadway show, and then the Rockettes come back after a commercial break and dance, and then Gene comes in with the parade. So I, maybe I was watching, the, I don't know. I saw the Rockettes on the screen, and in my brain, it was time for a confetti release. And I did the standby, and I said go, and as soon as I said the word go, I realized it's not the right time for the confetti release. And I, the, the surreal thing was I couldn't see it, but I could almost feel it. It's, you know, several tons of confetti released from the top of the Herald Square building at the wrong time. Now, most people in the audience didn't know that because it was for the Rockettes, and they were dancing, and Gene knew. Um... <laughs> And I, I, it was, I, I, mean, I still remember the chill that went down because there was nothing I can do about it, which yeah. I guess is the lesson about mistakes in advance. You got to just move you on. You can't reload the gun. You know, <laughs> it, 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 once it went, it went. And I was, that's the other thing is the mistakes that we make, oftentimes we're the only one that notices it. Um, but our goal always is that an audience doesn't know there were mistakes. Yeah. Is that all the shit that's going on backstage and that as, you know, the audience wouldn't even know what would happen. And that's in a public event, a private event, whatever it is. But I will always remember trying to put that confetti back. It's the genie back in the bottle. That's what it is. Not the, not the bull back in the gun, but... No, I know I exactly what you mean. That's funny. You know, my advice to anybody with events is that you said you got to keep moving forward. And the key to that is if you get confused or like all hell is breaking out all around you, you got to do the first thing that comes to your mind. And for me, like I actually was a housekeeper, so 
first thing, if ever I'm truly confused, is I look for trash and I start picking it up. I mean, that's stupid, but that's something. Like, I am creating a better experience by it being clean. And once you get in motion, you realize you calm down. And once you take that first step, the second step is so much easier. But if you just lock up and don't do anything, that's the worst thing you can do. So now that you shared the story of ruining the Macy's parade, what is your favorite story from your career in oh events? Oh, God, there's just so many. I, I think that there's not necessarily a story. I, I the, My favorite thing about what we do is accomplishing something with a group of people who, and it started at Macy's. You know, we were all young. We all stayed up all night. We None of us got paid a lot of money, but we loved it, and we were doing it together, and, and we're still connected, a lot of us. Um, and I think that it's that feeling of satisfaction when you're done. Even, you know, an event that we do now, and I see that our team goes out and has a beer afterwards, and it's it, that's the great thing about events is that tangible finish that maybe you can't take a breath for a week because you've got another one coming up, but that breath is such a great feeling when it goes well uh, and your client's happy and your participants are happy. Um, it, it's, it's really a cool feeling. And I am a behind-the-scenes guy, so, you know, in my mind if I'm calling a show and I say the word go and something happens that the audience reacts to I think that's cool it's that my I'm the one who hears I'm the guy who listens to Channel 9 and United Airlines because I like to hear air traffic control which my wife would never want to listen to air traffic control I was I laughing like when you were calling the, the show at the Chinese New Year's there's some chatting Friday. that goes on oh uh, when when you hear the jazz music too I did too and you're like does anybody else hear that and I didn't want to say anything I was like is that me <laughs> But com, I learned that when I did industrials is the, the talk on comm, especially when your client isn't on comm, can be incredibly fun. Well, you got to have fun with it. As you said, like, you're trying to call the show. You didn't really have a script. And all of a sudden, whatever her name was, started freelancing. And she was like, she did the Ellen selfie picture with uh, Maggie Q and the biggest star from China. I mean, that was pretty funny. And you're just, if you're not joking about it, you could be worried that your timing's right, off and that's or whatever. What, a stage manager has to keep everybody calm and make yeah. sure that everybody knows that we don't know what's going on right now, but hey, it, it, it works definitely. I've met, I've met some incredibly talented people in this business um, who really know what they're doing, and you know whether that's a vendor, uh, someone who's on a show call, somebody who brings us something. We're, we, you know, as I tell our clients, we don't actually make anything. We have some equipment that we keep in our basement, but we're like general contractors. You know, I'm not bringing you that stage. I don't build the sound system. Um, I need really talented people to do that, and I've always said... Um, no, you run the project, and you come up with the creative direction. Right. I and think we, there's way too much, like, just false advertising in event world. and Like, everybody pretends they do everything, and that's, no, that's not true. Right. Your and, job and is to hold the project on track. If there's something that I have used to say all the time, I say it less now, is gear is gear. And, you know, I'll get on the phone with an audio guy, and he'll start listing the name of this board, and the, I, I was like, I don't know any of that stuff. I, all I know is what sounds good, and I know that a good A1 is somebody that I can count on who is who knows what they're doing. I, the gear, gear is gear. Any company can get good gear. You can get great LED screens. You can get great staging. But if the guys aren't good, the men and women who they bring, um, then it's, it's the, you can get the nicest gear in the whole world. Yeah, so. same thing with me. I mean, I sell games and activities, and that's, an, that's a commodity. Anybody, you could get any game or activity, but it's how you use it. It's the narrative behind the like the game and how you apply it to the event that really matters, and that's mm -hmm. what makes you special or different than anybody else who does your particular job. I think it's really funny what you said for your favorite uh, ex well, experience within the event world because I'll say I love working for you and with Vantage because now I've been working for you for two years, and I'm always with the same people. 
So it's funny, you know, actually I like to work more than socialize. So for me, it's like I get to see my friends and I hang out with them, you know, and they're anywhere from like 10 to 16 hour days where you're on site. So, you know, it's actually really exciting. Well, I have definitely held you here long enough, so I just want to thank you so much, Matt. Thank you for your time, and I'll have all your contact information up on the website, so if anybody needs a good production company, they can give you a call. I appreciate it. All right, thank, thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.